Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley and I'm going to be taking you through the interesting papers, or some of them anyway, from the September edition of the Emergency Medicine Journal. It's part of our primary survey that we put out every month in print and on audio. So before we get going, just a quick reminder that the EMJ team is going to the annual scientific conference of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine up in Gateshead this year. That's the 1st to the 3rd of October. And the day before we're running a workshop on getting published, getting into research, academic careers, and you're very welcome to come along and attend that and come along to the conference as well. Lots of people talking at that and some really great presentations and actually presenting some new studies. So there'll be some live, first heard, absolutely hot off the press studies published there on things like use of tranexamic acid in nosebleeds. Does it work or does it not? Lots of people think it does, but there is a randomized controlled trial, the NOPAC study, which will be released then. So a little bit more about that as we go along, but let's get back to the journal and talk about what's in this month. So first up, there's a quite an interesting paper actually on dental radiographs. Now it's the sort of title you think, oh, I know about dental radiographs, I know how to do them, but you know I've ordered thousands over the years, but mostly really for trauma, and I increasingly find people struggle to interpret them, and I think there's a reason for that. It's the way that they're taking the OPG um, produces quite a lot of artifacts, things like ghosting. Never heard of that before, but learned that in this particular paper. But anyway, Anton Skavlos has put together a really great review on how to interpret them. Now, particularly in trauma, I think there's some really good stuff there about how we interpret it and the injury patterns you would expect, because a lot of things are predictable. But there's also an awful lot in here, which I didn't know, which is the use of OPGs around non-traumatic injuries. So things like infections. I mean, how often do you look at the periapical tissue? Be honest. How often do you look at the periapical tissue to determine whether somebody's got quite a significant bony infection in association with um, their facial or dental abscesses. I think there's quite a lot in here. I found it a, a really great vision piece and definitely one I want to share with the juniors. So yeah, definitely things in there which are of use, particularly for me at least, around non-traumatic features that you can see on these x-rays. And I think that's probably underreported by us as emergency physicians. And in fact, I think it probably reflects the fact that in emergency medicine in the UK at least, we probably don't get enough training around dental emergencies as we should. A lot of patients I see, particularly out of hours when there there aren't as that many people around, come in with quite significant dental problems. And it's all too easy to say, don't know, don't do that. We're not a dentist. But actually the patients there, they're often in pain or discomfort. And I think we probably have a responsibility to know what we're doing. So this is a first step. So have a look at that. I thought it was really interesting and good stuff. Then I'm going to have a look at a paper from Rebecca Simpson and colleagues together with, I think it's the Shah Group up there in Sheffield in the UK looking at the overnight effect. Now, if you've been in the UK, you will no doubt know all the controversy that occurred around the the weekend effect. So this was the idea that patients were more likely to die if they came in at the weekend. Now, that was largely refuted, I think. And um, the statistics that were put into that really didn't show that much of an effect. And once you once you adjusted for case mix, it was it was pretty obvious that there wasn't a massive weekend effect. But what about overnight? So in the UK, unlike our American colleagues, they departments are often staffed by relatively junior people, certainly people in training and not by attendings or consultants. And the pattern of things that we see overnight is different and the support that we have overnight is different. But what's the effect on that on patients? Well, uh, Rebecca Simpson and colleagues have looked at national statistics to show that 
Overnight, patients wait longer to be seen. Um, they wait longer in the ED overall. They're more likely to leave. They're more likely to come back later. Um, with having been discharged, they're more likely to return. And all of these things sort of imply that the... Well, the type of patients is different. In fact, there's, there's more minor injuries and more minor illness overnight, but also that we're perhaps not giving the same level of service. Now, this study can't tell us about whether there's a mortality or morbidity effect, but that's certainly worthy of further exploration. And maybe we do need to think a little bit differently about how we staff and support our patients and our staff overnight. I'm going to have a look at a paper on trauma team activation in paediatrics. Now, as I think I've said on the podcast before, I, I work in a paediatric MTC part of the time, and it is quite noticeable that the number of times that the trauma team gets called for paediatrics, and when it subsequently doesn't turn out to be a major trauma, is quite high in comparison to adults, where I think we're better at spotting them in the pre-hospital environment, or rather, we've got better, we're, we're more specific about it. I mean, the sensitivity, I think, is there in kids, but we get a lot of false alarms, so to speak. I think at the moment we're running at about the level of one in seven of our major trauma calls in paediatrics actually turns out a kid with, an, with a high ISS. So there's clearly an issue there because when you call a trauma team down to the ED, it creates a lot of work and it stops a lot of things happening. So theatres will stop and the surgeons have to come. and There is a bit of disruption. So if we can do that better, that would be a good thing. So our colleagues over in Singapore, Jen Peck and colleagues, um, have looked at a single centre. Now, the amazing thing I thought about this was the fact that they've got a single centre PED that sees 170,000 kids a year. Yep, you read that one, right? That's quite a lot of children. And then um, they looked at their trauma team activations, and then they looked at the patients who were coming through, looked at the registry and tried to identify which features were most likely to indicate the need for that trauma team to be there. And they looked and found that things like a GCS less than 14 or the motor components less than six of the GCS, if they've got a really high risk of mechanism injury, so like falling out of a high building, or age-specific tachycardia, then those are the ones that have got a quite highly specific need for trauma team activation. I think that's fair enough. I quite like the age-specific tachycardia because one of the things we've always said, and I think is in the literature, is the fact that tachycardia, persistent tachycardia in children is not a good sign um, and always, always, always requires a bit of a look and always a bit reluctant to send kids home, medical or surgical, with a, a persistent tachycardia. So I thought that was interesting and I think there is a more that needs to be done there. It needs to be repeated in different centres. We need to have a look at whether these criteria work in different health economies. But I think there is something about finessing our trauma team activation criteria in paediatric emergency medicine. Now, over in France, again from Singapore over to France, um, Helene Colneau and colleagues are asking a question which I suspect everybody out there has an answer to. And here's the question. The question is, why are we getting busier in ED? Now, if you ask clinicians, you'll get one answer. If you ask politicians, it's always because you know the wrong people are going to ED, and if they just went to somewhere else, it would be absolutely fine. Well, maybe not. What they've done here in this French study is they've looked at um, a load of departments, um, national stats as well, sorry, national statistics as per usual, and in fact, looking at over 7 million attendances over a period of time. And it's, a, it's, it's an answer that's not going to please the politicians because the answer is in their cohorts that the reason we're getting busier is because we're seeing more sick people. So actually the number of people with very low acute injuries hasn't risen by that much, risen by a little bit, but not enough to account for the big increase in numbers overall. That's due to the patients with moderate and more severe disease. And I think that reflects what I see in Manchester here in that, yeah, our numbers have gone up, but actually our primary care colleagues have done a great 
job in reducing the number of patients we see with minor illness and injury. But it's the, you know, on the Manchester Triage scale, the oranges and the yellows patients who are, are more um, in need of our services. So we not only got busier, but we've got more complex. And that really does put pressure on the system. Now, they've tried to sort of try and explain why this might be, but the, the data is not really going to answer that. So it tells us that there is a problem, but it doesn't tell us why this is happening. I mean, it could be anything, ageing changes, austerity, climate change, I don't know, support in the community, comorbidities, something in society, I don't know. But I think it's a theme that we're all seeing. And it certainly needs exploration because, quite frankly, the way we're going at the moment, it's going to be a struggle over winter because this summer is still pretty tough. I'm then going to have a look at a paper from Korea. Gosh, we're going all over the world this month in the EMJ, looking at out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Now, you may remember the Airways 2 trial, um, which published earlier in this year, not in EMJ, but it showed that there was no real advantage to intubation over the use of supraglottic airways in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. This paper is something slightly different. It's not an RCT, it's a, it's a registry trial, which looks at whether advanced airway management at all in cases where the paramedics or the EMTs actually witnessed the arrest right in front of them, so they were right there when it happened, made a difference. And the answer is no. In fact, the patients who had advanced airway management did worse. Now, there's quite a lot of confounders in that. And registry studies are always a little bit tricky on this one because it may just be that the patients got intubated or had a supraglossic airway because they were sicker or the ARS went on for longer or they didn't recover quickly. But it all kind of fits with the same theme that you don't necessarily benefit from having intubation in the very early stages of uh, cardiac arrest. And so, you know, basic airway management, making sure the patient's ventilating and oxygenating is more important than the device. And I think that's probably, although this isn't a perfect study, it's probably in keeping with what we're seeing from others. Then we've got a, uh, a paper looking at triage. It's a QIP methodology, a quality improvement um, process project. And um, this is something which has been coming in a lot. It's now part of the ARCHEM exams in the UK. And this is quite a good one looking at a project which is improving the time to triage. So a patient arrives, how quick did they get triaged? Problem in a lot of departments, actually, to get that time down as short as possible because it's an important component of emergency care. Now, this study's from Delhi, and the, it's, it's worth reading for two reasons. One, it's quite a good QIP. Um, so if you're doing a QIPs or you're marking them or you're advising on them, read it. It's good. And secondly, because there's some things in there you can steal about how to get triage working faster and the process to move it, multidisciplinary, multiprofessional, reiteration, uh, PDSA cycles, all of that kind of thing, which is quite nice and focused around something which is important. So if you're if you're quipping at the moment, then have a look at that. It's quite good. And then lastly, I'm going to leave you with intubation because no podcast can possibly be complete without some mention of, again, I suppose, intubation and airway management. So this is looking at RSIs, um, a paper from Karen O'Connell over in the US, looking in a pediatric ED about emergent um, airway management and whether or not people comply with what really looks like a checklist or a flow chart. So basically, they got a bunch of people together and said, look, this is the process that you should go through if you're going to do a paediatric intubation in the ED. And then they videoed them all to determine whether people did it. And here's a big surprise, folks. The people who followed the protocol had fewer complications by quite a lot, actually. And... This to me is good because I'm a checklist advocate, but not everybody is. And I still don't get this. So when we're working in the ED and we've got a high risk um, process like an ED RSI, some people are going, oh, I've been doing it for years. I can just wing it. Actually, I'm not sure. Whenever I use these things, I, I 
generally find something that was not quite right or that we can improve on. So for me, I like this. It's always the case, isn't it? Critical appraisal. You always like the papers that agree with you. Well, I agree with this one. So I think it's good. But that doesn't matter. You need to read it yourself. You need to get into the journal, have a look at all the other things that are in there and have a think. Do your own critical appraisal, make your own mind up. Oh, and don't forget to follow the image challenges as well. Just finally, there's one about football. It's possibly the most weird footballing injury I've ever heard of. Um, it's kind of crazy. I won't tell you what it is because you need to go and have a look at it. But it's an interesting one. So have that. Enjoy it. Think about coming to join us in Gateshead later this year for the conference and the particularly the EMJ workshop and enjoy your emergency medicine. We will speak to you again in October.